I'm black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. And welcome to another uh, episode of I'm Black, You're White, Now What? And which is which, uh, David? Is it is that clear? I think, I think yeah, I think... I'm uh, still the white guy. I, I think for this okay. episode, you will right, be... Just for consistency. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't mind. We I'll, just I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best, you know. Those roles. To... I didn't study my lines for the white <laughs> guy. So episode. last so, show, we had Brandon Thomas on, who's one of my good friends and colleague here at Phillips Exeter Academy. He teaches health and human development and coaches football and wrestling. And we had a great conversation with him and yeah, talked a lot about really travel good. and what it was like to be uh, the only black person in Changshu, China for four weeks. And, um, you know, how he managed to keep a positive attitude about people's curiosity. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Just, you know, um, like his take on how overwhelming that must have been to have people trying to take pictures of him all the time and and sort of treating him, uh, you know, like a sideshow. But his view of it and how he was able to see uh, that since they don't get to see a lot of black people um, that, you know, it was it was more of a novelty in that way, but that he still kept you know, how he's treated in that way in America in perspective. And so uh, the fact that he had, you know, that sort of unique perspective was still able to be very diplomatic uh, while he was over there is a testament to him. But I was also struck by just uh, what he's saying about what he's finding in the classroom with regard to uh, young people and how they're thinking about a lot of what's going on now and how surprised uh, pleasantly he is with, uh, just them wanting to get more involved and to be more active uh, than they would have been, say, you know, a few months ago. So that mm -hmm. by itself was encouraging for me. Yeah, I hope we have a chance to have him back. We have yeah. two phenomenal guests back with us tonight. John Leggett, who is a detective with the St. Louis PD, and Montega Simmons, who is, among other things, a professional movement facilitator, organizer, uh, gentlemen, welcome back. It's great to have you both. Thank you. It's good to be with you again. Good to be here. What I want to kind of get uh, to talk about um, during our time today is when we had you guys on uh, in separate episodes uh, before, we were able to touch on the issue of defunding the police, which uh, is kind of a hot topic now. And uh, we were able to get great insight from you both. Uh, on either side of that topic. So we thought, uh, what a great opportunity to have that discussion uh, between the two of you where we could have both sides of that in one episode. So, uh, I, you know, I thought we would just kind of do that if that's okay with you guys. Um, I'd, I'd like to just kind of do this in a way um, that, you know, kind of like they intend to do the debates. Uh, even though they don't really always go that way. So, so that you want all four of us talking and calling each other names at the same time? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right, just, and if you could talk about each other's families uh, instead <laughs> of the issue, that would be wonderful. Uh, but no, what I, what you know, like if I, I pose a question 
um, then you know one person answer and then the other person can offer a response or, or rebuttal to whatever degree and then we'll just see where it takes us um, and we put you in two separate locations so uh, the fighting that that happened years ago <laughs> I think in university won't be repeated uh, here today. I know where to find John that's right. We I know are both still in St. Louis, so right. yeah, yeah, exactly. You I don't want to kick off any. Yeah. You're right, right. Meet me on King's Highway. Meet me <laughs> on. Oh, right, exactly. You know the old spots to me. Natural Bridge. Um, all right, White Castle. Let's, um, right, exactly, exactly. Old school. Let's um, let's just talk about. I'd like you know one of you to go first and the other one afterwards to talk about. Uh, what the issue of defunding the police means in your uh, in your view, or what that what the definition of that is? We'll just start there, so everybody has a baseline. And then, and if I could just off. add to, if you could preface your definition or understanding of the concept of defund the police with uh, a few sentences that add some detail to your bios for anyone who didn't see your previous episodes, <laughs> that that would be fantastic. Sure. Um. John, you want? Okay. Uh, my name is Montague Simmons, born and raised in St. Louis. I am an organizer. Uh, currently, I lead the local justice work with the Movement Voter Project. Um, during the Ferguson uprisings, I led an organization called the Organization for Black Struggle. Um, and we did get deeply involved in police accountability work. Out of a lot of that local work and organizing coordination, national formations formed, including the Movement for Black Lives. In 2016, M4BL, as we call it, launched uh, the Vision for Black Lives, which was a political platform. And one plank of it was Invest Divest, which called for explicitly divesting from things that actually did not keep us safe and investing in things that did. Um, in the current cycle 2020, it's been literally narrowed down to a frame and hashtag that is defund the police. Um, it's rooted in an idea that when we talk about things that keep us safe, explicitly around policing, um, policing the way they show up often does not. Um, police tend to be called for a lot of reasons that are not squarely in their, their purview, like mental health crisis um, and a variety of things that are not in their primary uh, lane. And it's a call to say like, if we're truly trying to keep ourselves safe, we really need to begin divesting from the amount of resources that's going into policing and invest them into community-led projects that really can keep us safe, which could be anything from jobs programs to community mental health to addressing substance abuse to a variety of other things. But it leans into the notion that we can keep ourselves safe. Thank you. Well, hello. Uh, my name is Detective John Leggett, and I am a 19-year veteran with the uh, St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, where I currently serve in the juvenile unit. I'm an investigator in the in the um, Bureau of Investigative Services. Um, my interpretation and my understanding of, of uh, defunding the police, um, I, I believe I understand the concept. Um, and that is where Montega uh, was saying, where we taking, we're taking resources um, and funding different agencies and different um, structures to, to, to address issues that we face uh, for instance, uh, homelessness and um, jobless people who are looking for jobs and domestic violence and 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 all of those types of issues that we deal with on a daily basis. Uh, when you go on what we call call for service, uh, we get a call for a homeless man who's at I'm just going to make this up at the McDonald's or at the 7-Eleven. Um, 
we are not equipped um, to to deal with this homeless guy. He hasn't broken he hasn't broken a law. He hasn't committed a crime. Um, so we have funds where we could take him someplace where he could get some house get housing or at least get some immediate shelter and then maybe work on getting him into some type of transition housing, permanent housing. I think that's wonderful. I think that's great. Um, it would allow us to go out and catch uh, the real bad guys um, and address real crime. My problem with defunding the police is why not fund those agencies, as I say from the get-go, that's an old school term, why not fund those agencies properly from the get-go as opposed to taking those funds from the police um, I, I'm only speaking from St. Louis, uh, St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department perspective. 90% of our budget is made up of um, salaries and benefits. So we only have 10%. If we're looking at 100%, we only have 10% for equipment. Equipment such as vehicles, we need uniforms, we need cars, we need guns, we need bullets, we need all those things that 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 you need, we need paper. We need, you know, all of those things that we need in order to run a police department has to come out of that ten percent. Um, so where do we take this money from? Um, certainly, I'm just going to speak frankly. Frankly, there is no way I would do this job for any less money, any less than the amount of money that I make now. And we are we are one of the lowest paid departments in the country to deal with the type of violent crime that we deal with and to deal with the type of issues that we deal with. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm all for funding those agencies and having those things on, on, at our disposal. Um, having, we are one of the leading agencies in the country. Who, who, we do have social workers um, who are riding with us. We have a social worker in my office who's there 30 hours a week. Uh, she's a licensed clinical social worker. So when I run into families, who have these types of issues or having issues, whether that be with employment, whether that be with food, whether that be housing, she's right there in my office. I send her a referral. She gets right to that family and they get the services they need. And then she even comes back and lets me know, hey, these are the types of services that I was able to provide. So that the next time when I have an interaction with this family, I can say, okay, well, we're not dealing with this. We're dealing with this. So I'm, I'm all for it in terms of getting those um, families and, and citizens the resources that they need. I just think that we should fund those agencies from the beginning um, in terms of housing, in terms of employment, in terms of mental illness, in terms of all of those different um, types of issues that we deal with on a daily basis in terms of our calls for services, in terms of officers interacting with uh, the public. John, who's paying that that social worker that's in your office? Where does her funds come from? It, it's, it's a collaborative uh, fund in terms of the, the city is paying part of it and then the, the agency that she's working with. Awesome. What's remarkable to me and you know for anyone who has learned about defund the police only from political advertisements and I like David had the advantage of an hour-long conversation with each of you earlier in our series for which I'm incredibly grateful but if someone's only exposure to this renaming of, as you explained, Montega, what was invest, divest, um, they are going to just misunderstand it from the get-go. Um, uh, clearly, neither of you is arguing for chaos. Neither of you is 
arguing for violence. You're arguing for the opposite. You're arguing for social supports for people and for prevention of the sorts of things that increase the likelihood of violence. And that's wonderful. And it's in some ways tragic that what was a clear name before, Invest Divest, turned into defund the police and then got used as a political punchline. So just establishing some commonality there and clarity for people who are hearing this for the first time, defund the police is not about wherever you think the money's coming from or how it should be done. It's not about inciting violence or providing a lack of protection for people. Montega, as you said, part of it has its roots in recognizing the ways in which police training is mismatched for some of the duties they are asked to perform. And John echoed that as well. Um, and, you know, there, there may always be disagreement about where the money comes from. It certainly sounds like from what John's saying, uh, there's not a really a penny to spare if you want the existing uh, police to be able to do their jobs. I would love for each of you to say in just a few sentences, what do you say to people who confront you with defund the police is crazy talk. We need police to protect us. Yeah. So what do you I, say? I do want to lean in. Yeah, we don't lean into that space. Yeah. Because one, I don't, I know defund the police can be challenging in part because you're right. It has been flipped uh, to incite folks to think that it means something less than being safety, but it comes out of a specific like narrative then honestly, we, we typically don't like look back on history. Over the last 30 years, like part of what's happened is that resources have actually begun to be strategically divested from a part of the economy and invested into increased policing incarceration. Um, so that has to be acknowledged because it's also a narrative that's being used against both movement and against communities who are actually longing to be safe. Um, right. so yeah, I mean, that, I think when we talk about it, it's one thing to talk about the reality of keeping ourselves safe, but like part of what I put in the chat and just, just acknowledging like where John's coming from around the budget, like in the city of St. Louis, and we're talking about the total budget, about 15% of that's going to police, while just over 5% is going toward uh, like uh, health and human services and hospitals. Like all that's literally being lumped into one. And what we've seen is over not just the last year, five years, 10 years, but literally over like almost a generation, there's been a huge shift in priorities. And the way that they've actually addressed public ills is by adding more police to the street instead of adding more social workers, more doctors, access to people to actually address the ill. Um, so, so when we say defund the police, it leans into acknowledging that uh, police can't solve all these things and we need to like to defund that to really address the problem and to know what so, the the I'm history sorry. is yeah, yeah. No, i'm ahead, sorry David. right quick so you and and here's where i wonder kind of get some clarity because i'm hearing john say for instance if you have you know uh a million dollars for uh you know the police budget that 90 percent of that would be salaries and whatever and and, and specifically 
ninety percent of that million dollars will be John's salary. But anyway, uh, and then the ninety percent salaries uh, and benefits, right? And then yeah. the other ten percent is equipment and what have you. But and so my question was going to be, and you sort of touched on it, so we might as well get into it. Where this other money, uh, like John is saying, why not fund these from the get go? Where would that money be coming from? And so are you saying that the city budget, um, like to operate the the city or the state period, like there's there's money and a portion of that money is now being instead of used for uh, these services is being funneled to police or to other things other than helping people. I mean, I'm trying to understand but like where we would get that other money from to fund these things from the get go. If I can add add a little bit to that, um, in, in the city of St. Louis, uh, the police department falls under the Department of Public Safety. And uh, the Department of Public Safety makes up the police department, the fire department, ambulance, um, as well as the, uh, the jails, uh, the sheriff's department. Um, and that, that unit, the Department of Public Safety, takes up 60% of the city's budget. Okay? But you're talking about all of those things that I just said have to run 24 hours a day. Crime doesn't stop at five o'clock. Fires don't stop at five o'clock. Sure. Jails have to be run 24 hours a day. So, so I get it. I, I understand the makeup of, of the budget. Um, so we have to look at that also. Um, we, for instance, in the city of St. Louis, um, the FBI says that we should have 1,200 police officers to run a city our size. The St. Louis city, we have 800 on a good day. So we don't even have the bare minimum of what the FBI says that we should have to man the city. So how then do we justify taking money? Now I could I could see if we had, oh, 5,000 police officers and well, and they said, you only need 1,200. Well, my goodness, we got, look how many, look how many we have. Um, so, yeah, so I, I can understand that. Um, so, I, but I just can't, I cannot fathom doing my job so often much like teachers, we buy, some officers buy their own bulletproof vest because it takes so long to get through the system for us to get a bulletproof vest. I purchased my own because I want additional. I wanted, I wanted a second. The department says I, have, I can only get one. And so, John, in your, in your decades on the service, have you experienced, um, and you know, in particular in Metro PD at, in St. Louis, the historical growth in policing that Montego was saying is, you know, part of like defunding is bringing it back down to the Absolutely. historical level and not just throwing more police at problems that need a different solution. Is that, is that been your experience? Um, yes. I was born and raised in St. Louis. I've been here all my life. Um, so I've, I've seen the police department grow. I've seen um, I've seen the growth. I've seen the mistakes uh, on both ends. Um, when one other thing that I wanted to add was um, a lot of it is the stigma, the defunding part, the name defunding. For instance, um, and I said in, in my office, we have a social worker. I don't like to call her a social worker. I like to use the word family advocate mm -hmm. because when I tell a family, hey, I'm going to have our social worker, um, Angela, call you. They first, The first thing they think is, She's going to come to my house. She's going to report me to the Division of Family Services. Um, she's going to take my kids. But when I say family advocate, 
That's someone who fights for everyone in the family. They fight for mom, dad, the children. They fight yeah. for the family. So I think a part of it um, is the branding. Um, I notice when I say family advocate, they say, oh, sure, sure. Yeah, please have her call me. But when I say social worker, sometimes I do it intentionally because I want to see I want to see what their reaction is. So when I say family advocate, I always get a, a, a yes on the contact. When I say social worker, it's about 50-50. Mm-hmm. It's why David insists that people call him an, a, a, a motion picture artist, uh, not a videographer. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. like, like you know. gotcha. Well, I've called him yeah, custodial that, so engineer uh, <laughs> back when I was back when I was paying my way through school. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I, I do want to kind of lean in because, like, when John named the ratio, um, like that's a that's a big difference in terms of perspective. Um, like right now, St. Louis has about 60 uh, officers per 10,000 citizens, which is like the highest, one of the highest police per citizen ratios in the country. Um, but when you look at other cities that are actually considered the most safe, those ratios go down to a fraction of that. And it's because those budgets are also allocating for different services. So like we're not looking to increase the ratio. We are looking to decrease it, but also provide other things that actually can increase jobs, increase economic stability, increase access to health care, mental health care, and de-escalate uh, the violence that we're actually seeing in other ways. So I wonder well, where I the, the, the FBI recommendation kind of comes from, because that's interesting data where the ratio is lower and other money is the money that would have been used to have more police officers is used for jobs programs is used for uh, connecting people with other social services that they need, like what John is saying, you know, family advocates, um, all kinds of things, affordable housing, whatever it might be. Um, And I would, I mean, John, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would imagine that the job of being a detective would also become more enjoyable or interesting be more of what you were trained for rather than uh called into things that really you know aren't that not i don't know again i don't want to put words in your mouth like i'm remembering our prior conversation just stuff that you didn't sign up for or that you felt like was out of your wheelhouse um what what do you think about what montega just said no I, i i i get it and, and to, to, to flip back to your comment in terms of the FBI, that's in terms of the staffing, um, to staff a city our size, that, um, the, the number of people that we have in terms of our population, um, and then the demographics of our city and how our city is laid out. St. Louis is, is a really unique, um, it, it's kind of a, a unique beast uh, in terms of how, it's, how the city is laid out, mm. um, not like most cities. Um, and... Um, so that's based on on just strictly on the staffing um, to say, OK, you need X number of officers to staff this city. Um, that's the minimum. Now, we could have many more than that. Um, you know, uh, we have the police foundation. They come in and they off, they often raise money for the police department. And those are private companies, about Fortune 500 companies who come together who have fundraisers to pay for things that we need um, as as uh, as officers. Um, for instance, they bought us really simple flashlights we need flashlights but we need really high power flashlights at night the department cannot afford to buy each of us a 300 flashlight 
they gave us, when we got out of the academy, I got a flashlight that was probably about $7. Uh, but think about it. Um, they don't have that type of money. So we have the police foundation, but there are other agencies or other entities that can come in and, and, and to provide, um, you know, that funding that the city just cannot. Well, but it sounds like from what Montego was saying, and this, I'm just going to make up the numbers here, but if you went from 800 police, which is what the FBI is saying is the minimum, um, or 1200 is the minimum. 1200, we have 800. So you're already below the minimum. But if you went to 400 and don't take away anything from those 400 people in terms of salaries and benefits, mm -hmm. but use the money from the 400 other officers that uh, you would have paid and so lower the ratio if fewer police per or maybe it's increased the ratio but there, there's uh, one police officer not for 60 people but now one police officer for 100 people um, mm -hmm. because we've cut the number of officers in half but we've taken the funds that we have now at our disposal and put them toward what Montego was mentioning, jobs, programs, and, uh, you know, I don't know what else it would be, Montego, you would have to say, but that would decrease unemployment, housing, give people housing, yeah. maybe, and, and, and just less violence. But is that, am I oversimplifying here? Is that, is that what has happened in certain cities, Montego? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what folks are fighting for right now. Um, like in over this, over the past year, uh, we've seen spaces like Minneapolis and Dallas, uh, and well, so I think Austin is actually in the practice of doing this right now. Um, but folks are beginning to to discuss this in ways that, honestly, in January, uh, we couldn't even get on the agenda <laughs> to to have a discussion. But and like John, you're John's on the ground. What what would you need to see, John, to make you feel safe going from 800, which is already 400 below the recommended minimum, going from 800 to 400, now you're at a third of the recommended minimum. As, as an officer who is on the street, what do you what would you want to see in place to even feel like showing up for work on Monday? 400 with 400 less officers? Yeah. I wouldn't. Okay. I wouldn't. It's an officer's safety. There's no reason that an officer should be riding by him or herself. There should be at least two officers in every car for an officer's okay. safety reason. Um, I've always said that. There's no reason that we should have officers that are on the street riding by themselves with two years on. You don't know what you're doing in two years. You don't know how to be the police in two years. You don't know how to be the police in five years. Um, so it's an officer safety issue for me. Um, so no, if, if that were the case, I would certainly find a different profession. I mean, there's no way, I mean, for other cities, um, I, I can't say how it would work. I can speak. John, I think you're talking about conditions as they are right now in St. Louis. Right. Yeah, correct. Right. Yeah, given conditions as they are right now, I understand right. that. Well, that's and my question is, yeah, what yeah. what altered conditions? What what programs or what would you need to see first before you said like, okay, now now I might consider showing up for work on Monday if we're going from 800 to 400, but I got to see this first, like. Um, this certainly this violent. We we are experiencing uh, right now. We are experiencing a, a, a wave of violent crime um, every day. Every day, uh, I, I can honestly say, I can't remember a day we've not had homicide. 
That's sad. Wow. I cannot recall a day that we've not had a homicide. Uh, this summer was a, was a really violent time for kids. I work with kids. We had over 60 kids shot this summer. Yeah. That's ridiculous. That, I mean, so things like that. Um, we just had a federal, um, uh, a, a federal suite uh, that we had here in uh, St. Louis, uh, and they collected so many uh, guns and had so many arrests. Mm. Uh, federal, and, and these were federal charges. Operation um, Legend. Yes, yeah. Operation Legend. We just finished that, and that was just it, it was mind blowing um, at the number the the short time that they had that that program going, and to see the amount of drugs and the amount of of money and the amount of uh, weapons, uh, assault weapons. I'm not just talking about 22s. You know, these are, are really violent people. Wow. Um, so yeah, all of that would have to change for me. Um, and I'm I'm on my way out. So I'm a veteran. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, Montego, what what but, changes that? Like, I'm sympathetic to. I'm sorry, David. I'm sympathetic to what John is saying. Like, what what um, what do we need to do? for a city like St. Louis uh, first uh, before we back down from the level of policing that is, you know, by John's account already below what, what yeah. is, I mean, you know, like people are getting killed, kids are getting shot. So uh, the, the notion that, you know, there'd be, I don't know what, a different response to that is, only palatable after uh, we've been able to do something. What is that something, Montego? So one, and I'll, I'll give it a snapshot because I think David's also itching to to get into this. But snapshot, like when we talk about violence, the primary drivers of violence typically are poverty, um, housing, which we have a deep crisis of housing in an ongoing way, and access to social services. Like many of these people. Part of the, what drives violence in St. Louis is retribution. Um, so like there's a cycle of violence that, that starts mm. uh, that may be a crime of survival or hunger, but it spins into something else once survivors get involved. Um, and one, we need people that are actually trained and able to enter those spaces to deescalate that, but also just to change the general operating conditions, which honestly have been exacerbated maybe five to tenfold by COVID and their access literally to being able to live. Um, and like many of those folks actually survived on the street um, by interacting and hand to mouth like with the black market, whatever exchanges. And now that COVID is in play, there are different rules for operating and folks are desperate in a different kind of way. And violence has been exacerbated. Like that, that's a fact. I was going to say I grew up in St. Louis uh, myself, and so you know a lot of what you guys are talking about um, I know and have seen and also then I'm seeing to some degree here in Atlanta. But I was going to say, first, I had like several questions, so we're going to backtrack a little bit. But when the FBI is making this uh, recommendation, is the recommendation based purely on or primarily on the number of people in the city and like you said the layout or is there also uh, the inclusion of the crime rate the type of crime the you know what I mean all what's the matrix of 
things that are considered in order to say this number of police officers are needed to manage a city of this size? I think it's, I think it's primarily based on the population, um, the layout of, in terms of how many people are in the city, how many people are in your city that you need to police. Um, and so I, I think that's probably, I, I can't say for sure because I'm, I don't work for the FBI, but I'm sure that, that it's based on primarily on the number of uh, people who live in this city. Uh, because I'm strictly, I'm strictly speaking St. Louis City, and David, you know this, um, those people who are not from St. Louis. St. Louis City is totally separate from St. Louis County. Okay, so the FBI says a whole different number for St. Louis County. Um, so I'm strictly speaking St. Louis City only. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it's based on um, the population, the number of people um, that live in the city. And so do you think, my follow-up question to that is, do you then think that the crime rate is directly related to having inadequate number of police officers? This is for John. Not necessarily, um, because you can have more police officers it would help. It would help. Um, how can I explain this? It would help bring that number down. I don't. I don't say that it's going to um, bring it down uh, drastically. But you have to also consider. Um, for instance, I'm just going to use me as an example. I've not taken a vacation this year. Mm -hmm. I five weeks. I've not taken a vacation. I'm taking one uh, next month. But you have to also mm -hmm. realize that officers get fatigued. Um, so if you have more officers. We can allow more officers to be on vacation to have that disconnect. Um, so, I mean, to spread it uh, abroad, uh, it helps with training. Everybody can't go to training because somebody has to, to, to patrol the streets. So if we said, okay, we've got more police officers, we can allow more, more officers to go off to training, whether that's mm -hmm. training here in St. Louis or whether that's abroad in D.C. Or, or Atlanta or what have you. So I think it's, it's, a, it's an approach that we have to look at all the way around. Uh, so to allow more officers, yes, I'm I'm, I'm always in favor of that um, because th mm -hmm. there comes a time when you need that break, um, mm -hmm. uh, you need that training. Um, more training, I, I think I, I will never be against more training. Um, so yes, I think more police will help that. I don't say that you know we get five thousand more police than the crime in St. Louis is just going to drop. No, it's not. It's not because. So know, I guess I'm, then my question to cut, I'm just looking at and, and, and trying to get somewhere. So I'm, I'm, I'm and I'm going to bring my take in, I guess. But I'm, I guess I'm saying, for instance, if you have then, say you get 1,200 police officers, but also the crime rate drops to a third of what it is now. Okay. What do those cops do? Like, do you need those cops then if your crime rate is dropped to a third of what it is now? Like, like all, oh. all crime, violent in particular, but I'm saying, do you need, like, I, 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 what is what would that look like? And I'm saying academically, for me, it seems like then you wouldn't need them as much, but I'm not a police officer. You are, so you would have to tell me. I don't want to presume to know because I, I don't, but I'm just thinking in my head. If you had, like now I can see how you would be overwhelmed. You have a high crime rate. You have lower than the minimum uh, number of police officers. That whole thing sounds like uh, somebody who is not supposed to get shot is going to get shot. Just if nothing else for the fatigue 
and and stress level that you're talking about. But if there was a way to bring that down to where the crime rate got dropped, would the need for that many police officers then be be justified? Yeah. I would say yes. I would say yes. Uh, For instance, uh, we don't have uh, school resource officers anymore. Mm -hmm. Remember, we used to have school resource officers. We have guards who are in, in, in the schools, but we don't have any school resource officers because we don't have enough officers to outfit those schools with officers. Um, so it would allow us to have officers in other areas. So I would still say, yes, we, we would still have a use for those officers. Um, we don't have, uh, remember the officer friendly uh, program, mm-hmm. uh, which is another school resource, mm-hmm. which is what we do. But we, we don't have time to do that. We have officers that are going from call to call to call to call to call from the time they get there to the time they leave. They don't have time to do community policing. They don't have time to stop and do walk down the streets and walk the beats because they're going from call to call. They're going from a homicide to a shooting, to a domestic call to, you know. So yes, we then we could use those officers to have the officer-friendly program, to have a community policing, to have school resource officers, to have officers in other areas um, that, we, that we could, you know, use to do community policing. We don't have the manpower to do that. So Montega, from your point of view, then, how what's your response to that because if i understand what you're saying you're saying if you do things like give people these opportunities housing uh improve the conditions uh make it where it's not such a overall desperate situation uh you can impact the crime rate which would then impact the need for uh these many police officers am i understanding that correct first of all and then second of all how do you how does that then uh, impact your response to what John is saying about how you would still need uh, the, the same number of police officers. Yeah, I, one, your frame is correct, um, because mm-hmm. one, we're talking about deconstructing the conditions that are actually creating crime or criminality, mm-hmm. and like whether it's driven by poverty, driven by malicious uh, intent, uh, like honestly, like giving access to, to food, jobs, housing, uh, lessens the level of, the, the level of desperation off top. Um, but the other thing is like, I think my understanding of the numbers that the FBI are requiring are different than John's though. Because uh, in part, like St. Louis remains at the top of the most violent list in part because of the nature of our population. Like um, St. Louis city explicitly has probably under 300,000 people now, um, which means it's actually a very small population in a space that's built for more than a million. So the rates tend to be tend to show much higher than they are. Like Chicago's raw numbers are much higher than St. Louis's, but they're not in the same place on the list. We're always ahead of them, and that's an issue of population. But when the FBI is making that that recommendation, it's based on crime rate, and not necessarily the actual population. Um, which means they're actually saying we need this many people to address this rate of crime not under consideration of how many people are actually living in the space or the conditions that are actually causing. Mm-hmm. So, so Montego, let me ask you this. I'm sorry, to piggyback on- No, go ahead, go ahead, you're fine, go ahead. To piggyback on your question. Um, so are you saying that uh, if we give people more housing and more jobs and more uh, mental health uh, resources that the crime is gonna drop? 
I'm saying the likelihood, like nobody can make that as a promise up front. Well, no, like, I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. just the but concept. Yeah, yeah, yes. Okay. Yeah, the concept, so, is, the concept is that many of the crimes that people are actually being arrested and detained from are actually crimes of either survival or issues of addiction and issues of mental health. Hmm. And many of those people actually shouldn't be criminalized, like especially when we're talking about addiction and mental health, like there are other avenues for those folks versus actually being adjudicated. If we take them out of the system and literally just talk about malicious crimes, that's absolutely going to be an impact to the rate of And where is this funding and where and this funding um, is supposed to come from the police or? Some of that's absolutely coming from the police. Like before when okay. you mentioned being a part of the overall public, uh, public safety department. So I dropped the link in the chat just so we could actually look at the actual numbers. Like right now, you're right. Uh, between the police department and public safety, uh, is just over like 65, uh, no, 55% of the actual general fund. Not that's not the total budget, but the general fund. Mm -hmm. And of that, the police department is like 32%. Um, and yeah, that that that's what we're saying. But human services okay. in the city from the general fund is only 0.3, and uh -huh. health and hospitals is zero mm -hmm. out of the general fund. So, so we're saying if, like actually if, resourcing those people. Uh, so instead of actually calling 911 and getting a police response, we call a different code and get somebody who can actually do a mental health intervention or do an intervention around substance abuse actually takes those those numbers off of your list. So when we're talking about the rates of criminality, those I'm numbers will go down. I am all for that. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm just going to share this link. I got you. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm all for that, Montega. My question is, or my problem with, with that um, idea is that we can barely get a stimulus package passed. How then do we expect Congress and how do we expect our government? And I know that, I know how the answer to this, I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Um, how do we get our government to, to, to address that and really um, say, okay, well, we're going, we're going to give everybody who needs mental health um, resources, we're going to give them this. These people who need jobs, we're going to give them this. But right now, we're not talking about Congress. $100 for unemployment. Right now, we're not talking about Congress. We're talking about Mayor Lida Cruson and the Board of Aldermen, who can actually okay. do this as a reallocation. Meaning okay. this money is money that's already in our pockets in the city budget. But mm -hmm. right now, the moral statement of the budget is we're going to solve these problems by criminalizing these folks, putting them in jail, instead of actually saying, like, no, we can reallocate enough money to treat these folks either for their substance abuse, for mental health, and these other things, which would actually have a tangible effect. And that's something that's directly city, not state, and not federal. Yeah, I, I just use, I use federal government just as an example. Okay, and that, that's fine. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I think it's wonderful. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in total agreement. I am just not in agreement with taking it from the police department. Um, we, we don't have enough to do with what we need to do with right now. So how do we explain? How do we how do we do that? But I think he's saying that you don't have enough to do it, what you're trying to do, because the problem that you're facing is created by not yeah. having money in these other areas. Areas. So right. I think what he's trying to say is to have the money in these other areas then what brings down the size of the opposition for you and therefore brings down the acute need for your service in that way. 
I, you see I understand what you're saying. I don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. I, I still don't. I don't. I understand the concept. Mm -hmm. But after spending 20 years doing what I do, I don't think that will work. Yeah. I'll, like I'll say as a clinical psychologist, if somebody said to me, listen, Chris, uh, the reason why the, the, the sort of root causes of kids being suicidal let's just take the most extreme you know instances uh is uh they've got tons of unhealthy parental pressure they have uh absence of healthy role models and they have plenty of access to unhealthy ways of coping like alcohol and other drugs so we're going to address the substance access. We're going to teach parents uh, some ways of supporting their kids that don't apply unhealthy pressure. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're going to bolster their access to education and so forth, like, awesome, right? But it would scare the crap out of me to do my job tomorrow. If I'm the only person in the department, instead of having five clinicians, if I'm the only person there, because all of these programs that I know will solve the root problem are going to take months, years to gain traction. Meanwhile, I'm the one guy getting blamed for the increase in suicidality because I can't even begin to do my job the right way as a one person show. So you could defund counseling and psychological services but not until you've shown me that funding these other things is going to make that tolerable. But now, and, 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 and help me if I'm saying this right or wrong, uh, Montague in particular, but either of you. So I think part of the other problem with the defunding police brand is that people think that you are going to take that money now. Exactly. All of it. That's right. And then <laughs> when you do now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take 800 cops and reduce it to 400. I'm sending out 400 pink slips and these folks will be fired by Friday and, and good luck. Here we go. This. And so, right. yeah, that sounds like chaos, but right. I think that would be insane. And so right. to have a notion, like, I think you're talking about a thing that's an incremental thing Has over been. time Absolutely. to grow one thing while, and, and the effect of this, decreases the need for that i don't think that you can then say we're going to yank this out and then therefore it will be so so in in keeping with chris's analogy i i don't think anybody would be saying well you have to deal with 500 cases and you got enough uh you know barely enough clinicians to help with that now we're going to reduce that down to one and one guy now has a 500 caseload yeah that would that would make you not want to come to work but if you're talking about a thing where where it's not as dramatic a drop as that, and so am, am I understanding that right? I mean, we're Absolutely. not talking. Okay. Yeah, we can't. That's so, not a flipping switch like overnight, over a month, mm -hmm. probably even over like one or two years. It's going to take time. And honestly, mm -hmm. even to build the systems uh, to be in place, like some of what we're talking about either doesn't exist or isn't sufficiently funded. Mm -hmm. to be able to support the capacity. 
Like, even as we begin to, like right now, the city is going through a process of closing one of its jails. One of the big issues with closing that jail initially had been when those people were actually released, a big chunk of them didn't have anywhere to go. There weren't enough social service beds. There weren't enough uh, placements for them for substance abuse. Uh, they didn't have any place to go. So until we're actually building systems where those people can actually mail on, it's it has to be a process. We can't just close the door and say, no, now you're out in the cold because guess what? After a while, something's going to happen. And yes, you're going to be back in custody and eventually back in jail. So it that makes so much more right sense. Quick. It's sort of like the whole right. invest divest was such a better name. <laughs> right quick. I, I'm reminded now um, in St. Louis years ago, I remember them closing several mental health facilities huh? or yeah. mental health wings in hospitals. And yeah. all those people got basically put out on the street. Yes. And then you start having a lot more issues with mental health uh, incidents on, the, on the streets where I would imagine who you had to call for that was the police yes. you know, right. to, to deal with Correct. those issues. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The hospital on Delmar. Remember the, the mm -hmm. hospital right there on Delmar? Malcolm Bliss. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Malcolm Bliss. Yeah. Um, right. We named several. And let's be clear, like the conditions at those places weren't weren't necessarily what we want to see, but it right, was no where we knew those folks would would be. But it was a resource. Them. It exactly. was a resource that we had. And as, it was, as it was designed in the budget and in the charter that those things existed. And right. when they removed them, guess whose lap it fell onto? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Um, so I, I mean, I, I understand that it, it would take some time. Over some time, it wouldn't happen in a year or two years or three years. But I still go back to my original statement. Why not properly fund these other agencies? Um, I think we do a, a here in St. Louis. Uh, we are, like I said, we are one of the leading law enforcement agencies who have um, social workers, family advocates. I really don't like saying that. Uh, family advocates who ride with us, and when we get that call, we can go on to the next call of where some crime is really happening, so that this family advocate can work with this family, whether it's whether whether it be through domestic violence, you got a wife that's being beat by her husband or children who are not being fed or, you know, a family who doesn't have food or housing, what have you. Um, that's one of the major, major things that we have here in St. Louis um, is, 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 is the family or the family advocates. Uh, I actually advocating for the rest of the department to use that term. Um, in terms of mm -hmm. saying social workers, but that's what they are, social workers. But again, why not properly fund these other agencies so that when we run into people like that, we can funnel those uh, people or have those, you know, those calls handled by those agencies. Mm -hmm. Where would you get that money, John, in your mind? The comedy of states. I mean, you know, we could probably. I mean, and, and yeah, but, you know, <laughs> right. we, well, we have a few I mean, trips we're trying to go on, so we can't do that. <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know where that money would come from, whether it's taking money from several different, um, including the police or including, you know, different um, agencies, uh, city agencies or county agencies. Um, but I don't think that it should fall solely on um, this whole defund the police. And this is another thing. I think that a lot of people, when they hear defund the police, they see it as a punishment um, mm -hmm. for the police. Because uh, I've actually had people say, I don't have your MF and job when they defund the police. 
Okay. <laughs> I mean, we're yeah, I mean we, let's, we haven't talked about that, but let's talk about like oh. you're a member of Ethical Society of Police. Like, why do you exist? Why does the Ethical Society of Police exist? Okay, like most metropolitan cities, major metropolitan cities, there are two police unions. Uh, we, this is not unusual. Most cities have two police unions. The Ethical Society of Police, which is uh, the organization I'm a, one of the board members, we exist because um, the police association, they were not addressing issues um, that were pertinent to African-Americans or to minorities. Um, for instance, um, black police officers, we could be a, back in the 60s, um, you could be a police officer, but you could not carry a gun. Hmm. You could not arrest black, white people. So um, the Ethical Society of Police, we were founded in the 70s uh, because the, the department was not addressing issues um, that were pertinent to African-Americans. Um, so that's the, the main reason why we, why we were founded, um, uh, for, for promotions, um, just for being e equal. Um, if it's good, if it's good for one, it's good for the other. We took the same oath. Right. Uh, so that's I mean, the reason why the Ethical Society of Police uh, was founded. But that is, it's not unusual. Um, I'm just going to throw I, that I up wanna, there. Just in the name of, of equity, I right. put up Montega's website. I'm going to show this you, one as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the reason I bring them up, though, is because over the last, honestly, like five, six years, part of what we've seen is again, not just an increased tension, but an overt um, hostility and, and blatant dichotomy between the way uh, some officers have behaved. And honestly, the, the Ethical Society of Police has been one of the most stringent voices like talking about it. Um, 2017 Stockley, there was a black undercover officer who was treated like a protester. And what that meant was they were tased, they were taken into custody, they were brutalized. Um, and we've seen that happen more than once amongst black officers on the force. Um, and that's aside from behavior that we can point to with protesters. Now, I, I point this out as a dichotomy because I think you know, like there is a deep embedded culture of some officers there who probably should not have a gun, a gun or badge. Um, oh, I agree. I agree. I'll, yeah. I'll call him out. And the officer you're talking about is Luther Hall, is the undercover officer. Right. Um, call his name. Um, um, so, no, I agree. There are officers that I I don't think should be officers. Um, but I don't think defunding the police is going to expose those officers. I think we as other officers, um, and we just had, I just had this discussion like this week, uh, the best person to expose a bad cop is another cop. I, I, mean, I don't, I, I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree. I think I mean, part of the reason that we've actually leaned into defund is because mm -hmm. every time we leaned into training, um, every time we've leaned into making things illegal, like in some places, chokeholds have been made illegal. Uh, those reforms weren't working. And part of what we're looking at now is like literally shrinking the scope of policing to say, if we're talking about policing, um, like, I think for me, like if I'm talking about St. Louis, I think about Kajimi Powell. Kajimi Powell was having a mental health episode and was familiar with the folks on the scene, but when those police showed up, they killed him. Um, mm -hmm. Instead of actually somebody else showing up to deal with the mental health episode. Correct. So, I mean, that's why like you do hear like hostility from folks because of what we've actually been witnessing. But at the same time, it's a recognition that folks aren't always being 
giving what they need to, to be safe. And, and I totally agree. I agree with you on that, Mateka. I understand by no means have I done this job this long and, and, and don't realize um, that there is a, a, a under uh, undertone of racism in police, particularly in St. Louis. I understand that people are fed up. I, I get it. I, I totally get it. Um, and I, I, my heart goes out because me being a, as a police officer, a black police officer, wanting to do what's right um, and having to go up against the system. And I, as I said before, when I was on the show before, I've been to IAD without, a, without an attorney to tell on a, on, a, on a bad cop. And I was the one that got in trouble. Hmm. I didn't do anything, but I went to IAD to tell on a cop who did something. Hmm. And they turned it around and made me the bad guy. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm the one blowing the whistle here. How does the whistleblower become the perpetrator? You know? Right. Um, so yeah. I've, I've been there, done that. Um, yeah. So so I, I, I totally get it. I'm, my, my whole thing is I just don't believe that that entire responsibility falls on in terms of in the name of defunding the police. And I'm all for police reform. I am totally in favor of it. I, yes, some of, some of the way we do things it needs to be redone. Some of the ways that we do. I'm not saying everything. Bless you. Thank you. But I'm I'm also saying, and I know I, I want to be respectful of you guys' time. I know you got um, worlds to save, and so we're not going to keep you. But I do want to say um, that I think a, a comprehensive look at this, and this has been the great thing. Uh, I think Chris might agree about this discussion is. What's been put in the in the press a lot is one way of looking at it, like defund the police means we're about to fire a bunch of cops across the country uh, tomorrow, and that chaos is going to reign supreme in the streets and and everything. And that's what's actually being sold on political ads and sad mm-hmm. uh, that sort of fear mongering. Uh, but this is more a, a thing of of options and a more comprehensive view of a much larger problem that, you know, needs some consideration by everybody. I feel like if you have uh, a lot of these programs funded and and resources for people and you're having, uh, you know, sort of a reformation of how uh, policing is, uh, you know, applied to communities, that you will weed out some bad cops. You will either, you know, have those people removed from the streets, which to me, that's a danger. I think bad cops are a danger to even good cops. Um, and you will have like a better relationship between police uh, and, and communities and everything. And I think it's potentially a better situation for everybody. But on the flip side of that, I think there's some fear uh, to that. I think there's some fear to shaking up. Uh, the status quo, and I think there's some some concern, you know, and not necessarily unwarranted about how those things look moving forward when you haven't really seen them before. So um, I I will say I'm going I'm going to say that, and then I'm going to give you guys if you want a chance uh, to have some sort of closing remark, and then um, you know, and naturally. Doc, if you want, you got something you want to say as well, and then we'll. You we'll said it beautifully, that, so. and it's, uh, I mean, a privilege to listen to two people who are so articulate, so 
well-educated about their professions and the work that they're doing and um, so beneficial for me to listen and I hope to our you know viewership and audience. So uh, just want to say thank you before you make your closing remarks. Either one of you guys go first. Yeah. Okay. Um, again, um, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. Um, Montague and I go way back. Dave and I go back. We were all students at Lincoln University. Um, I used to oh, pronounce yeah. Montague's name Montague. Um, that's how. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we go way back. We we go way way back. I uh, have a lot of great respect for both of these gentlemen and for what they do. I see Montague a lot of times on protests um, uh, at different uh, events. And when the stuff is about to hit the fan, I say, Montague, get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but in terms of the whole defunding the police, I, I, um, if we could come up with another name, police reform, uh, I, I'd be happier. Um, oh, I could accept it a little bit more. And I, I, I understand the concept and I, I want to do that. I just don't feel like um, it, it, it should lie on the sole shoulders of the police to do all of that. I think, excuse me, I think we are again repeating ourselves. It's like you're asking the police, you're asking me to fix everything. You want me to fix everything. Um, so I, I think we are, we're repeating the cycle um, if we're going to do reform, let's do real reform. Um, and um, I think the police has, we have a role to play. And we certainly have to accept the responsibility for what we've done. We, we have helped create this monster. I mean, when I say we, I mean the police, but the community has also. And so it, it has to be, uh, it has to be a coming together in terms of, and the community, when I say community, I mean politicians, like Kusum, the Board of Aldermen. Um, and part of that is that, um, we, we've got to come together, um, meaning the police, the community, the, the, the politicians, all of that in order to solve this problem. So I don't think that it is the sole responsibility of the police to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. I think we play a major part in it, but I don't think it is our responsibility solely. Yeah. Um, I'll take it. Sure. Uh, like David, I mentioned before, I've known John almost 30 years and I love him as a brother. Um, I mean, we, yeah, we, we both played that role of keeping our people safe in dorms on campus, et cetera. Yes. And I know, I know where you, how you entered the space. Um, yeah. And then let nobody else say, yeah, I, I do love you. Um, but I'm also like in a position where one, it took some time for me to actually be able to open my own imagination in terms of what our community is capable of and what it could be to keep our folks safe. And that's shifted me. Like, honestly, 2012, January 2014, I couldn't have positioned myself as an abolitionist in thinking that way because, honestly, that wasn't what I was hearing from the community. Um, I think we've actually entered a space where we have to think that way, um, not just because of the way that police show up, but because if we actually intend to keep, to build communities that a lot of people thrive, and they have to be organized in a different way. And I don't think that includes policing the way it exists today. Um, and that's not, again, if, if honestly, if 90% of police were John Leggett, that'd be a whole different conversation, but that's not the case. And it's not even the, the sourcing culture of policing and the way it shows up in our communities. 
Um, so for me, like I stand by not only the hashtag of defund, but even more importantly, the idea of actually investing in these communities and investing in our own collective imagination to actually build something that we haven't seen before. It's gonna take courage and it's gonna take time. Um, but I, I believe in us and I believe in our ability to do it. Very well said. You guys do LU proud. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to have this little homecoming and include uh, Chris in the mix. So, you know. I'm honored. Teach you some of the LU lingo before <laughs> the next call. But anyway, um, thank you guys, man, very much. Like I said, I know you guys are very busy. So it means a lot to me that you uh, would, uh, would come on and speak with Chris and I. And so um, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, we need men like you on both sides of this thing. Um, and uh, we'll be praying for that young lady that you're looking for, John. Please do. Uh, Please and do. Uh, everybody else that you're trying to help. And you guys stay safe in these streets. All right. Please. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel Teaching What It Takes available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristhurber.com.